Welcome to Own the Microphone. Join me, Bridget McGowan, an award-winning international professional speaker and owner of the independent publishing company, BMAC Talks Press. Hello, everybody. Welcome to today's episode of Own the Microphone. And I have with me the one, the only, Tom Singer. Tom, welcome to the show. Hey, Bridget. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I, I'm excited because you are fired up when it comes to speaking and giving people strategies to be more confident. I'm fired up about that. So I see nothing but electricity and sparks happening today. What would you say, Tom, is the number one mistake you see speakers make that you know is easily preventable? And how do you prevent it? Well, I think the biggest mistake that, that people make when they're giving a presentation for work or in their community is they overprepare, and then when they hit the stage, they become speaker man or speaker woman, and they put on a facade because they think they have to look professional. They have to look like they're the smartest person in the room, and when you look at people who make their living as professional speakers, most of them, the ones I consider truly great, they just get up and they're, they're just themselves, and so I think getting up there thinking that you have to turn on the the speaker man or speaker woman you know uh, persona is one of the biggest mistakes people make so just be confident in what you're there to speak about and get up and and be imperfect and messy and and lumpy and get up there and be yourself and people will be drawn to you and when you talk about be messy be imperfect that scares some people because they worry about that's where the nerves come from the anxiety they worry about making a mistake and not being perfect. How can one get past that fear of making a mistake or being imperfect? Well, there's two things. One is experience. The more speeches you give, the more comfortable you're going to get giving a speech. And so I was told early on when I was becoming a professional speaker and I was very new to the world of paid speaking, I was told it would take 300 professional speeches before you would be truly great on stage. And at the time I'd given like 10 and I thought 300, I'll never get to 300. But now I've given over a thousand professional paid speeches. And sure enough, somewhere around that 300 speech, I just got comfortable in my own skin. So the first thing is, I think that is you you go out there and, and get the experience. The second thing is realize that nobody in the audience wants to see you fail. When you go to see a speaker, when you're at a convention, someone comes into your company, heck, you're in your church, wherever you are, and the speaker gets up on stage, nobody goes, wow, I hope she bombs. So the audience is already on your side. And so once you know that if I get up there and I forget my way, it's okay. You just own it and move forward. I, I was watching another speaker, and she had a video of her assistant that her assistant had sent a video email out. And she got tongue-tied on her words, and she stopped, and she looked at the camera and said, sorry about that. I just had a baby. I have baby brain. And then she finished the sentence, and she sent it to the client anyway. The client loved it because the client was like, that is so human, whereas other people would have refilmed that video 14 times before sending it to a client. They ended up winning the business because the client thought, wow, if someone, if they're going to be that real in the introductory video, imagine how they're going to be when I'm a client. So. Number one, get the experience. Number two, realize the audience is on your side and they expect you to be human. 
That was the exact word that I had in my head when you were talking about the baby brain. The, the first word that came to mind was human. When you're able to show that you are just like everybody else, it, this, this wall comes down, this barrier comes down and people feel like, oh, wow, I can totally connect. She totally relates to me. He totally gets where I'm coming from. Talk to me about how you connect with your audiences. How do you make sure that they know that you're relatable or they feel that they can relate to you? Well, there's two things that I do when I prep for every audience. Number one is I try to get to know who they are. So I, I, I talk to the meeting planner. I talk to people who work for the company. I ask for five or six names so I can do a couple of phone calls to find out what their expectations are around the topic that I'm an expert on so that I know what they do in their day-to-day work. So I know how they use you know, connections in business, how the people they interact with matter so that I can tailor the message, whether they're an internally faced group, an externally faced group, whether they're younger or older, you know, how they use social media. If I know all those things, I can talk their language. And then the second part of that is, is that I tell a lot of stories and the human brain is wired for stories. If you go back to ancient man, if you will, people sat around the campfires and the leaders of the tribes told stories about how crops get planted, how we raise the children, how we fight the war. You know, those were all through stories. So our brain recognizes stories. So when you have stories that can relate to the audience, all of a sudden, they're going to feel real connected with you. What's your area of expertise, Tom, when you make presentations? What's your passion? So I talk about human connection. So I started off, you know, talking about your network and your brand and how that led you to more business. And then I came up with this term called uncommon connections because we now live in a world where we have likes, links, shares, and follows. And I meet people all the time who are like, I have 10,000 followers on LinkedIn. Well, I don't care because first of all, the LinkedIn algorithm isn't even going to show your posts to all but like a couple of percentage points. So who cares if you have 10,000 followers if no one's engaged with you? So likes, links, shares, and follows don't matter as much as who's really in your inner circle are those uncommon connections who you have a real personal relationship with? And by the way, you can't have that with thousands of people. By definition, an uncommon connection has to be uncommon. So you can only have a dozen or 20 people in your life who you really have that sort of interaction with. But if you cultivate those, that's where you're going to find much more success as an individual and for your whole company. So if you work for a company and you know I come in and talk, if everybody on your sales team added one or two people over the course of the next two years to their own inner circle. If they had a couple of more uncommon connections and you had 30 people on your team, that could be 50 or 60 people who now know more about your company. Your company's bottom line is going to be directly impacted. So that's what I talk about. The people, Mm. the people side of business. The people side of business. People don't like to do business with a suit with a number with a, they want to do business with people. <laughs> yeah. Right. We, we, we want to know about people. And it used to be, I'm, I'm in my fifties. I was brought up that you had to have your corporate image. Well, now I speak on stage. I mean, I still wear a blazer, but instead of a tie and a, a matching like Brooks brothers suit, I wear like a blazer. Maybe it's got a little pattern on it, maybe a t-shirt, uh, maybe a nice pair of dress jeans and some funky shoes. And I'm not super wild. I mean, I have some friends who wear like plaid suits and things like that, but I'm much more relaxed than I would have been 20 years ago giving a corporate speech because that's what the audience now wants is they want to see 
Who are you when you go out to dinner with your wife? Who are you when you're with your kids? That's who the audience wants on stage. They don't want speaker man. <laughs> or speaker woman. Or speaker woman. <laughs> I love that voice that you have with speaker man. <laughs> speaker man and speaker woman. <laughs> Everybody, Tom Singer has developed, as you've heard, or has delivered over 1,000 professional presentations in his time as a speaker. Tom is a speaker, an author, podcast host, and coach who is focused on helping people excel in their careers via the connections they make. Before becoming a speaker, he had a successful career in sales and marketing with Fortune 500 companies, small business, and law firms. Now, you have not always been a confident speaker. I have a hard time believing that based on our conversation thus far. Talk to us about that. So early on in my career, I was in sales and my boss asked me to fill in for him at like an industry conference doing just a little breakout session. I wasn't going to be on the main stage. But there were about 150 people who came to watch me do this presentation and it was my boss's presentation. I didn't really, you know, plan appropriately. And it was one of those talks, and you've all been to this at a conference, where when the speaker says, in conclusion, you say, oh, thank God. I mean, it was a painful <laughs> talk for the people in the audience. And word got back to my boss. And my boss said, yeah, you know, if you're going to be in sales, and I was in my 20s at the time, he said, if you're going to be in sales, if you're going to build a career, the best thing you can do is join a Toastmasters group. And I'm like, I don't know what that is. And you got to realize I'm old enough that when I was in my 20s, there wasn't an internet. So I actually had to call an 800 number and Toastmasters sent me a brochure of like how to find the clubs in the city where I lived. And then I had to make phone calls to people to find out where the club met, when the club met. And I showed up at an IHOP, an International House of Pancakes restaurant at like 6.30 in the morning. And I, you know, and I remember going in thinking, oh, all these people are going to be fabulous speakers and all this. And it turns out they were just all business people who were trying to get better at the spoken word. And I got really involved with Toastmasters. I, I still keep my membership active even 25 plus years later. And in 2002, I came in in their international speech contest. I came in in the top 18 people in the world for their international speech contest. And people go, what do you mean 18 in the world? They had nine regions around the world, most of them in the United States. But uh, And then I was uh, at the regional finals. I was the runner-up to one of the finalists. So you figure nine finalists, everybody had a runner-up. That would be the top 18 in the world. And, and something like 20,000 people had entered that contest that year. And I thought, wow, you know, I've come a long way from that first speech where you know people wanted to leave the room. That's incredible. That is absolutely incredible. You should still pat yourself on the back <laughs> on a daily basis. Now, uh -huh. something you said caught my attention. You indicated it was your boss's presentation you had to deliver. Do you have any recommendations or any strategies for listeners when they find themselves in that position where they have to take content someone else has delivered or someone else has developed? Maybe it's the marketing team that developed a deck or the sales team and you're in some other position. How do you what do you do? How do you make it your own? How do you not fumble the ball? What do you do? <laughs> well, first thing you do is you practice. You get to know the material. Don't just assume that you know it because you work for the company and it's the basic stuff. Get to know it and then put personal stories into the talk. So experiences I had inside the company were different than what my boss would have had inside the company. And even though I was a junior person, 
my experience with that product and service really matters. And so, you know, take out some of their stuff. Don't tell someone else's stories. Never steal a story from another speaker. You know, we've all heard the story about the little kid on the beach who's throwing starfish back into the water. I mean, this was told in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s by speakers all over the place. And the idea was the sun was coming up, the starfish were getting baked, and this little boy is rushing around trying to get the starfish back in the water. And a cynical old man comes by and says, hey, kid, you're never going to save them all. There's too many. And he throws the starfish and it hits the water with a splash. And the little kid says it made a difference to that one. Well, you know what? That's a story that anyone can tell. That's a story that many people have told. Don't tell other people's stories. Figure out something that really happened in your life. So my signature story about why you build a network, why people in your business life matter. My signature story that I close every presentation with is about The slide just says it's not just about business. Now, I will have talked for 45 minutes about how your network and your uncommon connections and having a stronger inner circle will enhance your career and make your company more successful. The last slide is it's not just about business. And I tell the story about how we found the doctor who saved my daughter's life. And when I say that story, she, she wouldn't necessarily have died, but my youngest daughter was born with a condition where the bones in her skull had fused together and it wasn't diagnosed properly. So she was developing an elephant man-like deformity. And to keep this short for, for your podcast, at the end of the day, we had to look all over the country to find the best doctor because they were going to remove the entire top of her skull. And we got a call in the middle of the night from someone in our network. Their first cousin was one of the top three pediatric neurosurgeons in the whole world. And I'd read about the guy, but we were diagnosed late. You had to do this surgery by six months old. And at this point, Kate was five and a half months old. So we had to move fast. And it was this person's cousin. He said, he's expecting your call tomorrow. So I called San Diego. I got a hold of Brady Children's Hospital. They put me through to his office. The nurse answered that it was Dr. Meltzer's office. And I said who I was. And the nurse said, he's expecting your call. I spent the next hour on the phone with one of the top three pediatric neurosurgeons in the world. The next day, my wife flew with Kate to San Diego. She called me that night and said, get out here. He wants to do the surgery on Friday. And three days later, we handed Kate over to one of the best doctors on the planet. And they did the operation, removing the top of her skull, which they promised us would probably grow back. Not super reassuring, but now, you know, it was a three-hour surgery. They called my cell phone and said, Kate is going to be fabulous. Fast forward to today, Kate's 20 years old. She's a sophomore at Dartmouth College. She is precocious. She's beautiful. She's fun. And she's making a difference in the world. The bones grew back. Her head looks more like a cantaloupe than a watermelon. And I will tell you that when I tell that story, no one else can steal that story. No one can say, hey, I met a guy and they found the doctor because the story doesn't work. We all have things that happen to us. Find your stories craft them for the audience and people will always remember you. I, I got on an airplane a couple months ago. And this person said to me, are you, are you a speaker? And I was like, well, yes, I am. <laughs> you know, the <laughs> ego steps in and he goes, I saw you speak 15 years ago. How's Kate? He remembered her name. He'd never forgotten the story. And that was my story. You know, nobody else ever told that story on stage. And so it was one of those things that, you know, that's what you need to do is find your own experiences and put them into that speech, even if it's a corporate, you know, canned speech. 
Yes, 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 and yes. That's all I have to add on to that. In a little bit, you will have the opportunity to ask me a question. For now, I can't believe I'm about to ask you this question, but I am because I have a hard time believing you would have this situation. How do you deal with a difficult audience member? (laughs) Well, it can happen. Now, when you're doing corporate speeches, you don't get heckled very much. But when I turned 50 years old, six years ago, I made a personal pledge that I was going to make age 50 to 75 the best years of my life. Now, a little sideline, people always come back and they go, Tom, your dad lived to be 99. What about 75 to 100? You know what? I'll cross that bridge when I get to it. I'm just living in this season, 50 to 75. And my motto became try new things. And one of the things I tried is a friend of mine's a professional comic, invited me to go to open mic night with him. And I got up and did a five-minute set at a comedy club in New York City. Now, this wasn't great. I wasn't hysterical. However, you know, I always tell my joke is, had Jerry Seinfeld been in the audience, he would not have been worried about job security. I was not that good. (laughs) But I came home to Texas, and I told my wife, I said, you know what? I'm going to do 100 open mic nights. And I travel a lot. And so over the past four years, and there was like a year off during the pandemic, but when I would be in another city, I would Google open mic night Phoenix, open mic night Denver. And I would go to a comedy club or a bar and I would do a five minute open mic night set. And you do get heckled when you do stand up comedy. And what I learned from comics, and this is true in a corporate setting too, if you have a difficult audience member, if somebody's pushing back on you, never turn on them because the audience is a collective group. If you push back and be like, sit down, asshole, or jerk, or whatever. Oops, I didn't say that. Uh, The audience won't like you as the speaker. Let people say their part. Let them say their thing and, you know, just be like, hey, everybody's got their opinion. Treat them with respect. They'll back down because they want to fight. Whether it's a comedy club or, you know, someone in a corporate audience who's trying to prove how smart they are, they want you to push back. If you're just respectful, give them that honor If they keep pushing, the audience will turn on them. People will shout them down. So be respectful to a difficult audience member. Mm, Very good pointers there because you're just adding fuel to the fire, like you said. Uh, Force follows force blindly. Force follows force blindly. And so if you're pushing back, they're just going to push back harder, not even realizing why they're pushing back. They're just going to blindly push back at you. I almost am ready for your question. Almost. (laughs) Okay, I'm ready. I I think I'm ready. I'm set. What question do you have for me? So I want to know what led you to be so fascinated with the art of speaking well? Sure. Wow. It started probably when I was working at an ed tech company and I was doing faculty development for this educational technology company, which it was a publishing company, but in the 21st century, everything's going online and becoming digital and so on. So I was doing workshops and webinars and so on. And the team that I was on would put on conferences. At one of these conferences, one of the company VPs happened to be there and he saw my presentation. It was a presentation on something geared toward college faculty. You know, I don't know how to engage 12 different generations in one classroom or something like that. So after the presentation, about an hour breakout session, he came to me and said, Bridget, I really want you to do some presentation skills training with our sales reps. And I'm like, where did this come from? And so 
you know, Tom, if you're going to do something, give it 100%. I mean, do it or don't do it right or don't do it at all. So I'm immersing myself and I'm finding all these books on presentation skills because I'm just giving the audience the experience I would want to have. I'm thinking through the presentation. Where are their lulls? Where might people have questions? Is there a gap here, right? I'm, I'm, I'm choreographing these 60 minutes so people walk away with something of value. So I had not really given thought to the science behind what I was doing. So I'm finding every book that I can find in every workshop and whatever I can get together so I can put together this presentation skills training all of a sudden. And it was fascinating to me to just really look at what does it take to captivate an audience, but also to deliver a message. So there you have it. It just happened because of that VP and I couldn't let go. I was bitten by the presentation skills, be a better speaker bug. (laughs) And it's just been fascinating to me to just talk about how do you get up there and crush it? Well, I will add that I mentor a lot of younger people who come to me and ask for business advice, not necessarily to be a speaker. And the number one piece of advice I give them is learn how to become a great presenter because in any line of work, whether you're an engineer, whether you're in sales, whether you're a teacher, whether you're an accountant, if you can clearly and concisely use the spoken word in a way to move people to action, you will get promoted. You will get opportunities. You'll get recruited to a bigger company. Early on in my career, after I had joined the Toastmasters Club, I'd left that company where the boss had told me to to go be a better speaker. And for the next 10 years, when I worked in corporate America, I would be in a meeting. I can remember at one company walking out and somebody pulling me aside going, where'd you get your MBA? And I'm like, I don't have an MBA. And they said, God, you speak like you have an MBA. And I, I still don't know what that means, but I think what it meant is because I could clearly and concisely talk about the business that we were in, people just assumed I was smarter than I was. Wow. 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 Definitely being able to handle the spoken word and the written word that will put you leaps and bounds ahead of your competition. Wow. That's, that's interesting. And we're going to have to look that up, Tom, and figure out what does it mean to sound like an MBA? We'll have to figure (laughs) out what that's all about. Tom, what else do listeners need to know from you before we close out our conversation. Well, I believe in what I call a pattern of circles, right? So I want to take us back to the beginning. One of the first things I talked about, about being yourself when you're on stage. The biggest compliment I ever got happened a couple months before the pandemic. I was the keynote speaker for a mortgage company. They had their 900 top salespeople in the United States. This was a big company. They probably had three or 4,000 mortgage brokers in, in the company. And the top 900 All were in Dallas, and I was their opening keynote speaker on this big stage in a giant hotel ballroom, and I'm standing on the side while the president is doing his welcome and stuff like this, and just kind of leaning against the wall, and all of a sudden, I see this person like in that 10th row middle climbing out over people. Excuse me. Pardon me. Excuse me. Pardon me. And he starts running right up to me, and he goes, Tom, and I look at him, and I kind of recognize him. He's like, do you know who I am? And it clicked. He was someone I went to college with. He was in the same college fraternity that I had been in, but he was three years younger than I was. So we didn't really run in the same group, but we had some overlapping friends. He was one of the top mortgage people for this company. And he was so excited. He didn't know I was going to be the speaker. He had gotten the brochure and he opened it up and there was my picture. And fortunately, I don't look that much different, you know, 30 years later than I did in college. And he was like, oh my God, I went to college with this guy. And then he saw me on the other side and he came running over. 
About that point, I get introduced. He returns to his seat, and I speak for an hour. And afterwards, we're hanging out at the coffee break, and he told me during my speech, he started texting everyone that we knew in common from our college fraternity. And, you know, if you were in a college fraternity or sorority, you give each other a little bit of grief, right? You tease your friends a little bit. So people are going, he's like, you're not going to believe who the speaker is. And people are like, oh, he thinks he's Tony Robbins or whatever. And they're making fun of me in this text group text chat. And then one person asks the guy who was in the audience, hey, is he any good? And the guy shows me the response. And the guy in the audience said, he's very good. But the interesting thing is, He's the same person on stage. He would have been at the frat house before we had a party telling us, you know, make sure you greet everybody at the door during rush. Make sure that, uh, you know, you don't let anybody stand alone. He goes, he's essentially just rush chairman and social chairman of this meeting, the way he's talking about connecting and why people matter. He goes, he's kind of the same guy. His personality hasn't changed at all in 30 years. And I told him that is the single, single biggest compliment you can give a speaker is to say you're the same person on stage that you'd be if we were having a beer. Ooh. Ooh. That's huge. That's huge. It go and like you said bringing this full circle goes back to what you were saying earlier where you will have people who become speaker man or speaker woman and all of a sudden they're putting on this whole different persona and then maybe unrecognizable. Right when they're not on the microphone. Okay, I know I made it seem like we were wrapping up our conversation, but I must ask, <laughs> I must ask one more question. What is it that you are, what, what question is posed to you most often when it comes to presentations or presentation skills? Like what do people wonder about most frequently when they're trying to up their skills? I think the question I get the most is how do you go from being a good speaker at a corporate meeting yeah. to being a paid speaker at a conference? Mm, okay. And, and I think the answer is, is twofold. One is to get paid repetitively and to have a multi-year decade plus long career as a professional speaker who people give you money to come to their company. You've got to be good on stage. You don't have to be the greatest speaker ever, but you have to you have to clear a bar. So you have to be entertaining. You have to be fun. You have to have really good content that people can put into action. But the next step is, is that you have to have the confidence to ask for the money. You have to be willing to step up and say, you know, I've been doing this for a while and you're a for-profit entity or you're putting on a for-profit event. Are you paying speakers? If the answer is yes, then the answer is you're, you're going to pay me as well. And so part of it to make that transition from being able to speak to get paid to speak, you got to be good, but then you got to have the confidence to ask for the check. Mm. Okay. Those are really good pointers. And I really like what you talked about when it came to the actual content of the presentation. It can't just be a lot of humor and a lot of laughs, but you have to be entertaining, but also bring something of substance and have a good balance there. So there's a lot of people who ask, do we want like a motivational speaker who's fun and funny and upbeat and got a great personality? Or do we want a content speaker? And people like will draw it out like it's on a graph, like in the line, like you move it, more content or more humor. It's not an either or. You need to have both. The speaker has to have great content that moves people to action on whatever topic they're speaking about. Because here's the thing. All speakers need to be motivational speakers. And people go, oh, I hate motivational speakers. Really? What is the opposite of motivation? Bridget, what's the opposite of motivation? What is it? Right, lack of motivation or unmotivated. Demotivation, right? 
And, and nobody can ever come up with another answer other than lack of motivation, demotivation. One person did say the opposite of a motivational speaker is sucks the energy out of the room. And I'm like, exactly. So why would you hire that person? Or even if you're not paying them, why would you give them stage time? So you got to have the motivation piece to move people to action. But at the same time, you got to have the content that gives them the tools to take the action. And I don't think it's either or. I was at a conference one time and the speaker was horrible. I mean, it was like people were streaming out. It was one of those big ballrooms with like a thousand people and like 400 people left during the hour keynote. And he was like a, he was like a PhD professor. He had like chalk all over his pants and and there was no chalkboard to be found, right? He hadn't (laughs) even washed his pants since, since a dry erase boards came into being. (laughs) And the meeting planner, people were like, this was horrible. And she goes, but he was so smart. No, smart is important. You got to have the content, but if that's all you have, nobody wants to sit there for an hour. So you've got to have content and you have to have style and it's not a pendulum. That's either, or you got to have both. And I think what causes people to have, and this may not be the right word, a fear of the label of motivational speaker is they think as a motivational speaker, you have to be this cheerleader and you're doing this rah, rah, re thing. And that is not the case. Again, it's about this balance of content rich, but also there has to be some levity in there. A presentation should take the audience on a ride. There it's should be a total pe- journey. You're, ab- you're, you're absolutely right. And you know who, who ruined motivational speakers? Chris Farley. You guys, do, you may not be old enough to remember Saturday Night Live had a skit where Chris Farley played a motivational speaker and he had no content. He was just yelling and screaming in people's face, get up, you're great, blah, blah. And, you know, he, and, and I asked the audiences this, even younger audiences know the answer. Where did that character live? He lived in a van down by the river because he wasn't successful, but he was this motivational speaker. And so people came to believe that motivational speakers were all fluff, no content, no success. That's not true. Your best presentations, whether it's a paid speaker, whether it's your boss giving a speech, whether it's uh, you know someone at your, your faith community, whatever, the best speakers are truly motivational. There you have it. There you have it. Tom Singer, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the show today. Thank you. It's been great to be here. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time, for your insight. Great stories. I'm sure we'll, if, if someone runs into you after listening to this conversation, yes, they'll ask about your fraternity. They might ask about Kate. They're going to ask about all kinds of things other than speaking. They'll, they'll ask about Chris Farley, rest his soul. <laughs> exactly. Well, listen, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you again. Thank you to the listeners for tuning in. Until next time, make sure you always own the microphone.